Thank you very much. They say introductions are like alcohol. If you rub it on, it's all right, but if you swallow it, you're in trouble. So, <laughs> uh, Eric uh, did a great job, and uh, I thank him very much. Uh, I hear that he wrote a letter to the uh, institution that I'm to the president of the institution that I'm associated with, and asked uh, <clears throat> if they could recommend a speaker. Uh, I understand that he said that uh, he would require just two qualifications. One is that he be distinguished, and two, that he be a wit. The president wrote back immediately and said he could think of no one on the faculty that, <laughs> <laughs> that, that qualified as distinguished, and certainly no one that was a wit. But he said he'd be happy to send two half-wits. <laughs> <clears throat> I guess Eric wrote back and said, just one, please. <laughs> There's a certain danger in having a psychiatrist uh, as a speaker. <laughs> you know, we, we're forced to listen to people all day. And often when we get a chance to speak, we <laughs> take great advantage of it. You probably heard of the story of, uh, of the three uh, physicians that were on a panel and asked to speak for 15 minutes. And the internist got up and spoke for 15 minutes right to the second. The surgeon got up and spoke for a little less than 15 minutes. The psychiatrist got up and he was speaking. He spoke for 15, 20, 25 30 minutes, the, 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 um, um, the, the leader of the panel was trying to signal him that his time was up, and he kept pointing to his watch. But uh, he apparently, the speaker ignored it, finally took his watch off and started waving it. He was speaking for 35, 40, 45 minutes. As it was going for 50 minutes, uh, the, the chairman of the panel became so angry that he picked up a gavel and threw it at him. Well, it missed him, but hit one of the ladies sitting in the front row. And as she was sinking into unconsciousness, she could be heard to say, uh, hit me again, I can still hear him. So. <laughs> so, well, our, our task this evening, as Eric pointed out, is to uh, compare the materialist worldview of Sigmund Freud with the spiritual worldview of C.S. Lewis. Now, although Freud, uh, in his last published work, Moses and Monotheism, uh, attacked Judaism and outraged the Jewish community, he directed most of his attack against what he called the present-day Christian form of the spiritual worldview. So, therefore, uh, we will focus on that specific worldview, the worldview based on the New Testament documents, and that uh, defined and defended by C.S. Lewis. Why Freud and Lewis? At first glance, they don't seem to be a pair that you would compare. <laughs> but few individuals have influenced the moral fabric of Western civilization more than Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. What makes them so influential? Well, First, both possess extraordinary literary gifts. Freud won the coveted Goethe Prize for literature. Lewis, who taught uh, at Oxford 
and held the chair of medieval and renaissance literature at Cambridge University, produced some of the world's great literary criticism. In addition, uh, he, he wrote uh, a series of widely read scholarly and, and fictional books. Secondly, both Freud and Lewis spent a considerable portion of their lives writing about, advocating, and defending their respective worldviews. Third, and fortunately for us, both wrote autobiographies and thousands upon thousands of letters, making it possible to see what life experiences influenced their choice of a worldview and how their worldview influenced their lives. Fourth, Lewis changed his worldview from materialist to spiritual, so we can observe the effects of both worldviews on one life. And of course, we're going to be interested in how an intelligent, uh, sophisticated intellectual could change from a materialist worldview, a militant atheist, to, to become a strong believer in the spiritual worldview. Well, let's lay the groundwork for this exploration by asking three questions. What is a worldview? Who is Sigmund Freud and who is C.S. Lewis? As Eric said, everyone has a worldview. Our worldview is simply our philosophy of life, our attempt to make sense out of our existence here on Earth. Whether we realize it or not, uh, as Eric said, we all have a worldview. We all share the experience of being born, of looking around for a few years, and then gradually formulating our philosophy of life. We make one of two basic assumptions. We view the universe as an accident and life on this planet a matter of chance, or we assume an intelligence beyond the universe who gives the universe order and for some life meaning. Our worldview informs our personal, social, and political lives. It influences how we perceive ourselves, our image of ourselves, how we relate to others, and how we adjust to adversity in our lives. Our worldview helps determine our values, our ethics, our capacity for happiness, our motivation, and our purpose in life. Some historians of science, such as Thomas Kuhn, uh, points out that even as scientists, our worldview influences not only what we investigate, but how we interpret what we investigate. Our worldview tells more about us, perhaps, than any other aspect of our personal history. Now, who is Sigmund Freud? Well, on the morning of September 12, 1939, at Golders Green, a small village about 20 miles northwest of London, a group of friends and family gathered to mourn the death of Sigmund Freud. That week, the front page of the Sunday New York Times declared in headlines, Dr. Sigmund Freud dies in exile at 83. And in subheadlines, founder of psychoanalysis succumbs at his home in London. The article described his recent escape from the Nazis, who burned his books, dismissed his theories as pornographic, and demanded a ransom for his freedom. The article mentioned Freud's worldwide fame and greatness, referred to him as, quote, one of the most widely discussed scientists, 
mentioned that he set the entire world talking about psychoanalysis and that his ideas already permeated our culture and language. The New York Times article and the cover article in Time magazine a few months before Freud's death foretell the powerful impact this Viennese physician would make on our culture during the 20th century. Today, historians rank Freud's scientific contributions with those of Planck and Einstein. If Freud's fame and influence continues to grow since his death 60 years ago, so have the criticism and the controversy surrounding him. Nevertheless, Freud's concepts permeate our language. We use terms such as repression, complex, projection, inhibition, neuroses, psychoses, resistance, sibling rivalry, and as Eric pointed out, Freudian slip without even realizing where these terms come from. His model of the mind is still perhaps the most developed, and of the more than 100 forms of psychotherapy, the majority use one or another of Freud's concepts. Because of the unmistakable impact of his thought, scholars now refer to our era as the century of Freud. In an issue devoted to the greatest scientific minds of the century, you may remember a year or two ago, Time magazine had two men on its cover. One was Albert Einstein and the other Sigmund Freud. As part of his intellectual legacy, Freud strongly advocated an atheistic philosophy of life, and he waged a fierce ongoing battle against the spiritual worldview. Freud's philosophical writings, more widely read than his expository writings, uh, have played a significant role in the secularization of our culture. In the 17th century, people turned to the discoveries of astronomy to demonstrate what they considered the irresolvable conflict between science and faith. Uh, In the 18th century, to Newtonian physics. In the 19th century, to, to Darwin. And in the 20th century, to Freud. Now, who is C.S. Lewis? 24 years after Freud's death, on the morning of November 28, 1963, at Oxford, England, about 60 miles northwest of London, a group of friends and family gathered at the Headington Quarry Church to mourn the death of C.S. Lewis. The service began with a quote, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. After the service, the group walked slowly in the cold, clear day and watched silently as the coffin was carried from the church to the churchyard for burial. The New York Times of November 23, 1963, amid a plethora of articles on the assassination of John F. Kennedy that occurred the day Lewis died, announced in headlines, C.S. Lewis, dead, author, critic, 64. Under a photo and an article of several columns, the Time reviewed Lewis's prolific life, mentioned his reputation as a brilliant scholar, reviewed some of his scholarly and popular works that had already sold millions of copies, and noted that his success as a writer occurred after his change of worldview. C.S. Lewis, the celebrated Oxford Don, literary critic, and perhaps this century, the, 21st, the 20th century's 
most popular proponent of faith based on reason, won international recognition long before his death in 1963. During World War II, his broadcast talks made his voice second only to Churchill's as the most recognized on the BBC. A few years after the war, a cover article in Time magazine described him as, quote, the most influential spokesman for the spiritual worldview. His books today sell millions of copies a year, and his influence continues to grow. His extraordinarily popular chronicles of Narnia, Narnia ignite the imagination of children throughout the world. The sheer quantity of personal, biographical, and literary books and articles on Lewis, the vast number of C.S. Lewis societies in colleges and universities, the award-winning London and Broadway plays, and the movie Shadowlands all attest to the ever-growing interest in the man and his work. Because Lewis embraced an atheistic worldview for the first half of his life, he provides cogent responses to Freud's arguments against the spiritual worldview. Freud raises an argument, and Lewis attempts to answer it. In their, their writings, therefore, possess a, a striking parallelism. Freud, if Freud serves as a primary spokesman for the materialist worldview in this century, Lewis certainly serves as the primary spokesman for the specific worldview that Freud attacks. When Lewis began teaching at Oxford in his 20s, Freud was already in his mid-70s. Lewis knew well Freud's theories. The new psychology was widely discussed even by the time Lewis had enrolled in college. Freud had already become father of the new literary criticism, and Freud may very well have read some of Lewis's early writings, such as The Allegory of Love, published to critical acclaim several years before Freud died. Freud admired many of the great works of literature that Lewis wrote about. Uh, for example, Lewis, uh, Freud considered uh, Milton's Paradise Lost the greatest work of literature that had ever been written. And as you know, uh, Lewis wrote a great deal about that. His preface to Paradise Lost is, is a classic. And Freud may also have read Lewis's The Pilgrim's Regress, in which Lewis satirizes Freudian psychology. Lewis named one of the characters Sigismund, Freud's real name till he changed it at the age of 82 to Sigmund. He changed it to Sigmund. Maybe he changed it because of that uh, book that Lewis wrote. <laughs> well, what, what is Freud's worldview? Well, in his scholarly works, his autobiography, and his letters written throughout his life, he refers to himself as a materialist, an atheist, a godless medical man, an infidel, an unbeliever. A year before his death, he wrote to Charles Singer, the historian, stating, quote, Neither in my private life or in my writing have I ever made a secret of being an out-and-out -out unbeliever. Freud, however, did waver once. When he was in college, he came under the influence of a professor he considered to be a genius, a devout believer named Franz Brentano. Freud wrote a letter as an undergraduate stating, quote, I have ceased to be a materialist, but I'm not quite yet an, a theist. And then he said, and I'm not going to surrender easily. 
Freud divides all people not into psychiatric categories, but into simply believers and unbelievers. And under unbelievers, he includes all those who call themselves materialists, seekers, skeptics, agnostics, and atheists. And under believers, he includes a spectrum from all those who merely give intellectual assent to something being up there, uh, to those who, like Lewis and Paul and Augustine, Tolstoy, Pascal, Isaac Newton, Malcolm Muggeridge, to name a few, who describe a transforming spiritual experience that revolutionizes their lives and literally makes them into new creatures. Freud calls his worldview scientific, perhaps because of its premise that knowledge comes only from the scientific method. He asserts, quote, there are no sources of knowledge of the universe other than the intellectually work than the intellectual working over of carefully scrutinized observations. In other words, what we call research. And alongside of it, no knowledge derived from revelation, unquote. Once Freud defines his worldview, he begins a, systemic, a systematic attack on the religious worldview. He says the miracles contradict everything that has been taught by sober observation and betray too clearly the influence of the human imagination. He says the documents, the scriptures, are, quote, full of contradictions, revisions, and falsifications. And then he adds, no intelligent person can accept the absurdities or fairy tales of the religious worldview. He writes that the doctrines, the doctrine that the, quote, the universe was created by a being resembling a man, but magnified in every respect. An idealized superman reflects the gross ignorance of primitive peoples. In his famous Civilization and His Discontents, he writes, the whole thing is so patently infantile, so foreign to reality, that it's painful to think that the great majority of mortals will never rise above this view, unquote. Freud's daughter, Anna, the only child to carry on his work, who received an honorary degree from Harvard several years ago, uh, told me on a number of occasions, she said, if you want to know my father, don't read his biographers. They thought they knew him, but they really didn't. Read his letters. That will give you a much clearer idea of who he is. But a careful reading of his letters reveals some rather surprising, if not perplexing, material. One, Freud frequently quoted from the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments. In his autobiography, Freud writes, my early familiarity with the Bible story had an enduring effect upon the direction of my interest, unquote. Two, letters throughout his life are replete with words and phrases such as, I passed my examinations today with God's help. If God so wills, the good Lord, taking the Lord to task, into keeping, into the keeping of the Lord. He writes phrases such, until after the resurrection. And then he said, science seems to demand the existence of God. 
He refers to God's judgment, God's will, God's grace. If someday we meet above, if someday we meet in the next world, my secret prayer, he keeps referring to, in a letter to Oscar Feaster, the Swiss clergyman, Freud writes that Feaster was, quote, a true servant of God and was in the fortunate position of leading others to God. We could continue on and on. His letters are replete with these phrases. What do they mean? He said there was no God, and yet he keeps referring to him over and over again. I suppose we could dismiss all this as merely figures of speech, common in English as well as in German. Yes, we could if it were anyone but Freud who insisted that even a slip of the tongue has meaning. <laughs> and we note a preoccupation with the question of God's existence. In the earliest letters that we possess, written as an undergraduate at the University of Vienna, uh, they're filled with discussions of arguments for the existence of God. The editor of this volume of letters, published in 1990 by the Harvard University Press, comments on, quote, the extensive treatment of God's existence. He seemed to be preoccupied with it. Freud appears to be obsessed with whether or not God exists. He says that this is by far the most important question that a human being could ask. Does God exist? And this preoccupation continues until his last book, Moses and Monotheism, written over a half century later when he was in his 80s. Now, what does all this mean? Is there something about the human mind that simply cannot put this question to rest? Does this suggest that at some level of the mind that we, we know the answer? We, we know the answer to this question, to this most important question. And is that knowledge simply an expression of an unconscious wish, as Freud claims it is, or is it a reflection of reality that we know innately? I first wondered about this when I observed uh, some of my students who during, their, during our class discussion dogmatically denied the existence of God, but who during the same discussion acknowledged that when they were in a plane and the plane hit turbulence, they found themselves praying. Lewis said that when he was an atheist, he too was a whirl of contradictions. He writes, quote, I maintained that God did not exist. I was also angry with God for not existing. I was also equally angry with him for creating the world. Why should creatures have the burden of existence forced on them without their consent? <laughs> Freud, to support his position as an atheist, proffers two main arguments against the existence of an intelligence beyond the universe. One, the argument concerning human suffering, and two, the psychological argument concerning wish fulfillment. Both arguments prevail in our culture today. We can hear people mention them as they talk about their own worldview. Freud's main argument against uh, the spiritual worldview, the psychological argument, rests on the notion that all religious ideas are rooted in deep-seated wishes and are therefore false beliefs. He writes in his widely read The Future of an Illusion, we shall tell ourselves that it would be very nice if there were a God, 
who created the world and was a benevolent providence, and if there were a moral order in the universe and an afterlife. But it is a very striking fact, he writes, that all this is exactly as we are bound to wish it to be. Freud therefore concludes that belief in God is merely a projection of powerful wishes and inner emotional needs. He writes, quote, Religious ideas which are given out as teachings are illusions, fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, and most urgent wishes of mankind. The secret of their strength, he writes, lies in the strength of these wishes. Freud asserts that the deep-seated wishes we project stem from early childhood feelings, a feeling of helplessness that carries over into adulthood. Freud writes, biologically speaking, religiousness is to be traced to the small human child's long-drawn-out helplessness and, and need of help, and two, a less conscious but very strong wish for the protection of one's parents, especially that of the father. When the individual becomes an adult, he still finds himself helpless, Freud writes, when confronted with the great forces of life, and conjures up a figure like the one who protected him as a child. So Freud asserts that we possess intense, deep-seated wishes that form the basis for our concept and belief in God. According to Freud, God does not create us in his image. We create God in our image. C.S. Lewis knew well all of Freud's arguments. Perhaps he used them to bolster his position when he himself was an atheist. In his, in his autobiography, he writes, uh, quote, the, the new psychology was at that time sweeping through all of us. We did not swallow it whole, but we were all influenced. What we were most concerned about was wishful thinking and, or fantasy, for we were all poets and critics and sent a very high value on imagination in some high Coleridgean, Coleridgean sense so that it became important to distinguish imagination from fantasy as the psychologist understood that term, unquote. C.S. Lewis counters wish, Freud's wish fulfillment argument with the assertion that the biblical worldview involves a great deal of despair and pain and is certainly not anything one would wish for. He says this faith begins with the realization that one is in deep trouble, that one has broken the moral law and needs forgiveness and reconciliation. He writes that this faith begins to make sense only, quote, after you have realized there is a moral law and the power behind that law and, you, and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power, unquote. Only after that, only after we realize that our position is nearly desperate will we begin to understand the scriptures, Lewis says. Although this faith is a, quote, thing of unspeakable comfort, Lewis writes, it does not begin in comfort. It begins in dismay with the, realize that you, with the realization that you're in deep trouble. And Lewis adds that any attempt to live this particular worldview also involves pain and is certainly not something one would wish for. In the problem of pain, Lewis notes that the process of rendering back one's will which we have so long claimed for our own, is in itself extraordinarily painful. To surrender a self-will inflamed and swollen with years of usurpa usurpation is a kind of death, Lewis writes. 
Drawing heavily on his own experience, when he wished God did not exist, Lewis presents the argument that the New Testament, once properly understood, is anything but wish fulfillment. Lewis also makes another counter-argument to Freud's statement that belief in an intelligence beyond the universe is merely a projection of a wish for an all-powerful father. Lewis astutely notes that Freud's argument stems from his clinical observation that a young child's feelings toward the father are always characterized by a, a, quote, a particular ambivalence, that is, strong positive and strong negative feelings. So Lewis observes that if Freud's observations hold true, that one's childhood feelings toward the father are marked by this ambivalence, negative and positive feelings, uh, then these wishes may work both ways. Lewis asks, would not the negative part of the ambivalence, the strong negative feelings, indicate the wish that God not exist would be as strong as the wish for his existence? Lewis found this to be true in his own life. He notes in his autobiography that as an atheist, his strongest wish was that God not exist. Lewis wanted no one to interfere in his life. Quote, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference, unquote. He writes this in Surprised by Joy. The reason atheism appealed to him was because he sat, it satisfied his deep-seated wish to be left alone. Lewis says that Freud's clinical observations tell us something perhaps about our thoughts and feelings, nothing about the existence of a creator. Clinically, I have observed uh, that all of us have some conflict with uh, parental authority. We've uh, been disobedient at times. Uh, we have some ambivalence toward it. Uh, the differences, of course, are in degree uh, and not in kind. And I wonder, is it possible that our early life experiences with parental authority sometimes determines whether as adults we remain open to or defiant and close to even the possibility of an ultimate authority. Is it therefore possible that Freud's atheism and the atheism that Lewis embraced for the first half of his life may be explained in part on the basis of negative feelings toward, toward their fathers? Uh, a considerable amount of evidence supports this notion. Both Freud and Lewis describe strong negative feelings toward their fathers when they were children, feelings they wrote about often as adults. Freud's father was already a grandfather when he married Freud's mother, his third wife. She was half his age. Freud felt considerably closer to his mother than to his father. In a self-analysis, Freud discovered feelings of intense jealousy and rivalry toward his father. His father, because of financial reverses, struggled to support his family of seven children. Freud considered his father a failure. <clears throat> Freud also associated religious faith with his father, uh, who was raised in, in the Orthodox Jewish tradition. Uh, his father presented Freud with a Bible on his 35th birthday, with this inscription. My dear son, it was in the seventh year of your life that the Spirit of God began to move you to learning. The Spirit of God speaketh to you. Read in my book. There will be open to you the sources of knowledge of the intellect. 
Thou hast seen in this book the vision of the Almighty. Thou hast tried to fly high on the wings of the Holy Spirit. Unquote. Freud clearly associated the spiritual worldview with his father. C.S. Lewis also had a conflict-ridden relationship with his father. He lost his mother through death when he was nine years old. His father, overcome with grief, sent Lewis away to a boarding school in England. So the terrifying loss of his mother resulted also in the loss of his father. Perhaps Lewis could never forgive his father for sending him away during a time of desperate emotional need. In his autobiography, Lewis describes his father, his strained relationship with his father. When his father died, Lewis expressed remorse for feeling so alienated toward him, so angry and so impatient. Lewis, like Freud, also associated the spiritual worldview with his father, recalling discussions in which his father encouraged him to attend church and to become a believer. One other related point. Both Freud and Lewis, as adults, experienced great difficulty with authority, with the whole concept of authority, not only with the concept of ultimate authority, but with any authority. In Freud's autobiography, he notes how he struggled to get rid of the last shred of, quote, uh, the innocent faith in authority of which I was not yet free, unquote. He mentions how he works well with people under him, but not with people over him. Lewis also writes of his, quote, deep-seated hatred of authority he felt as an atheist. Did these intense negative childhood feelings in Freud and Lewis toward the first authority in their lives, their fathers, cause, um, say, unconscious adult resistance or conscious adult resistance to the very notion of an ultimate authority? Does this give us psychological insight into their intense hostility toward the spiritual worldview in their embrace of atheism? Well, uh, we asked a question at the beginning. Uh, this, this is a little bit about how they were both atheists. Now, one of them, Lewis, has an adult, has a mature adult, gradually changes from an atheistic worldview to a spiritual one. Now, how is it, how could a highly intelligent person uh, change from a critical militant atheist, a respected member in perhaps the most prestigious university in the world, how could he come to embrace a spiritual worldview so in conflict with his atheism? What led to that experience? An experience that so radically transformed his life, his temperament, his motivation, his relationships, his productivity, his very purpose. What led him not only to embrace the spiritual worldview, but to spend the rest of his life defining it, defending it, and in the words of Time magazine, becoming its most influential spokesman? Unlike Freud, who as an undergraduate wavered in his atheism, Lewis as an undergraduate never wavered. He had an intense aversion to all expressions of religiosity. As a young boy taken to church by his parents, he found the emotion expressed in the, in the sermons embarrassing. He often had to uh, keep from, from giggling uh, and getting in trouble 
uh, as he sat uh, listening to uh, uh, a sermon. The enforced chapel at boarding school meant only freedom to, quote, daydream without interruption. He hated organ music and found the lyrics of most hymns simply, quote, bad poetry, unquote. (laughs) He met and liked people in the clergy, he said, but writes, though I liked clergymen as I liked bears, I had as little wish to be in the church as in the zoo. (laughs) Because of his deep hatred of authority, the notion of an ultimate authority who might interfere in his life, he said that very thought made him feel nauseated. He recognized in himself a deep-seated wish to be left alone, a deep-seated wish that God not exist. Lewis wrote in a letter that the change, this transforming change in his life was, quote, very gradual and intellectual and not simple. So tonight we can only mention a few of the highlights. First, Lewis noticed that throughout his life, from the time he was a little boy living in Belfast, Ireland, he periodically experienced an intense longing, a longing for someone or something that he really didn't understand. For years he struggled to understand this. He writes in his autobiography that this longing is, quote, an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world, unquote. And he carefully distinguishes this desire from wishful thinking. He writes, quote, such longing is in itself the very reverse of wishful thinking. It is more like thoughtful wishing, unquote. Although he describes this experience as the central story of his life, he eventually came to realize that no human relationship could ever satisfy this longing. Joy was a, quote, a pointer to something other and outer, unquote, a signpost pointing to the Creator. Second, as a young Oxford don, some of his close friends, people he admired, rejected their materialist worldview and became what Lewis called, quote, thoroughgoing supernaturalists, unquote. He thought it was all errant nonsense and felt that there was no danger of his ever being taken in. Yet he experienced a loneliness and a kind of sense of being deserted by these friends. Then he met other faculty that he admired, especially a Professor Dyson and a Professor Tolkien, later to become famous for his Lord of the Rings. Both men were believers and were to play an important role in Lewis's great transition. Lewis writes, these strange people begin to pop up on every side. (laughs) Third, Lewis became aware that all the authors he most admired both ancient and modern, embraced the spiritual worldview. He admired Plato, Virgil, Dante, Johnson, Spencer, and Milton, and more modern writers like George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton. Lewis writes that the materialists, in comparison, seemed, quote, a little thin. Then two events happened in quick succession. 
that played an important role in Lewis's conversion. First, he read Chesterton's Everlasting Man, a book that profoundly impressed him with arguments he, use, he uses in his own writings many years later. Second, one of the most militant atheists among the Oxford faculty sat in Lewis's room one evening and remarked out of nowhere that the historicity of the Gospels, the historical authenticity of the Gospels was surprisingly sound. This came out of nowhere and it struck Lewis and deeply disturbed him. He understood the implications. He had considered these documents to be myth, not historical fact. And as the man was speaking, he wondered, Lewis wondered to himself, could this be true? Could they be true? If they were true, he realized all other truth faded in significance. Did this mean, did this mean his whole life was headed in the wrong direction? Lewis writes that he began to feel his adversary, the one he desperately wanted not to exist, closing in on him. He felt hounded, not only by the hound of heaven, but also by the great writers he admired and by many of his friends. He said they all had joined the pack. He realized he could use his will now to open the door or keep it shut. Lewis makes one of the most fateful decisions of his life. He decides to open the door, to open his mind, to examine the evidence. And he begins, when he, when, when he begins to do this, he says he begins to feel the presence of him whom he really did not want to meet. As he begins to read the scriptures, he begins to look at the evidence, he begins to feel the presence of God. Finally, Lewis surrenders. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second, from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly de desired not to meet. In the Trinity term, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. <laughs> this first phase in Lewis's transition, Lewis explains, was only to theism. I knew nothing yet about the incarnation. The God to whom I surrendered was surely non-human, unquote. Lewis experienced no personal relationship with this God, and at times when he prayed, he felt he was, quote, posting letters to a non-existent address, unquote. Lewis expressed confusion about the doctrines of the New Testament. He hadn't really yet begun to read the New Testament, and he was confused about phrases that he would hear people mention, like redemption, atonement, propitiation. These he thought silly and childish. And he said that he found it very difficult to believe something that you don't understand. So he began reading the New Testament in Greek. And as an atheist, Lewis, like Freud, considered the New Testament story another of the great myths, these great myths that Lewis had spent his academic life reading, of a God coming to earth, dying, rising again. What was the New Testament but just another one of these myths? He never even bothered to read it. But now as he read the Gospels for the first time, he was struck by what he read. The Gospels did not contain the rich, imaginative writings 
of the great pagan myths. They appear to be simple eyewitness accounts of historical events by Jews obviously not familiar with the great myths of the pagan world around them. Lewis writes, quote, I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the Gospels as myth. They had not the mythical taste. They didn't work as legend. They just didn't work. He observes that they were, quote, different than anything else in literature. He writes, quote, if ever myth had become fact, had been incarnated, it would be just like this. His concept of the central figure in these documents also began to change radically. As an atheist, Lewis dismissed this figure as, quote, a Hebrew philosopher, another great moral teacher. As Lewis continued to read the documents, however, he began to realize that this person, unlike anyone else in history, made unique claims about himself. Lewis writes that, quote, he was as real as Plato's Socrates or Boswell's Johnson, yet also numinous, lit by a light from beyond the world, unquote. Lewis noticed that this person not only claimed to be the Messiah, to be God, he also claimed to forgive sins, to forgive what other people did to others. Lewis wrote later, now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic, quote, unquote. Uh, even Freud seemed to realize that the, the, the uniqueness of this claim. In a letter to Oscar Feaster, Freud writes, quote, and now just suppose I said to a patient, I, Professor Sigmund Freud, forgive thee thy sins. What a fool I should make of myself. <laughs> In The Everlasting Man, Chesterton pointed out that no great moral teacher ever claimed to be God. Not Mohammed, not Confucius, or or Plato, or Moses, or Buddha. Chesterton says, quote, not one of them ever made that claim, and the greater the man is, the less likely he is to make it. Only lunatics, or those who deliberately deceive for evil, selfish purposes, make this claim. As Lewis continued his reading, he agreed with Chesterton that the evidence weighed against this person being evil or psychotic. Clinically, we do see people who claim to be God but they present with poor reality testing, impaired functioning, and obviously lacking in the sensitivity, wisdom, and insight of a great moral teacher. If he were psychotic or evil, Lewis reasoned, Christ would not be a great moral teacher. Lewis reflected these very thoughts many years later when he closed a chapter in his most widely read book with, quote, a man who was merely a man and said the things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, unquote. One might ask, how could Lewis, as an atheist, a brilliant scholar, who spent a good part of his adult life in the libraries at Oxford, have such a limited perspective concerning this Hebrew philosopher. He certainly knew more books had been written about this person than anyone else in history. That he appeared in the writings of Roman and Jewish historians, and therefore was more than a myth, and that all events in history are recorded as happening before or after his birth. Perhaps part of the 
reason that Lewis did, wasn't aware of this was that as an atheist, he described in himself a certain, quote, willful blindness. He didn't want to know, and therefore he never examined the evidence. On the evening of September 19, 1931, Lewis invited two close friends, Dyson and Tolkien, for dinner. They began discussing myth and metaphor, a discussion Lewis would always remember as pivotal in his life. After dinner, they walked the Oxford campus, and the discussion continued till 3 o'clock in the morning when the uh, tower clock in Magdalen College struck 3 in the morning. Tolkien looked at his watch and said, Oh, I can't believe it's 3 o'clock. Uh, I must get home to my wife. And he left. Lewis and Tolkien kept continuing to talk. And what they had talked about was Lewis, I mean, Tolkien and Dyson were very, very uh, knowledgeable about these great myths. And they pointed out to Lewis that these great myths were actually inspired by God to be written by these men to act as pointers to someday this event happening in history. And Lewis later was to, to, to write about this, saying that you know, he came to understand that all of these great myths and, that were written in these pagan cultures were inspired by God to actually point to someday in history this person, the, the, the real God coming to earth, dying and rising again, what Lewis called the grand miracle, the, the resurrection. A few days later, Lewis experienced the second phase in this great transition. He writes that he knows when it happened, but not exactly how. He was on a motorcycle heading to the zoo. Lewis writes, quote, When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. <laughs> Yet, he writes, I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. He then uses a rather striking but familiar metaphor that we can all identify with. He writes, it was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Once Lewis made the conscious decision to open his mind, to overcome his willful blindness and look at the evidence, and the second decision to surrender his will, only then did he pass from what he described as the darkness of unbelief, the shadow lands, into the light of reality. That, in brief, is a, a brief description of the two worldviews and of Lewis's uh, change from one to the other. I hope that uh, you may have found it a little helpful in understanding uh, people that uh, may not share your worldview and perhaps even a little better understanding of your own. You've been very attentive. Thank you very, very much. Possible for you to find your way to that microphone. Uh, I suppose you may stand, but speak very loudly. And I beg you, please uh, keep it very brief. We don't have a lot of time. There are a lot of people here. I'm sure a lot of people want to ask questions. Um, so please uh, 
keep your questions on the succinct side. Every time we do this, there's, there's somebody <laughs> who doesn't do that. So um, anyway, if you can't make your way to the microphone, uh, feel free to, to just pop up. Otherwise, I'm going to keep talking and uh, I'll ask questions. Hi, I have a question about um, Sigmund Freud's atheism. Um, how much of it is derived from his being a Jew in Vienna? Um, to be a, an atheist is to, I mean, to be a Jew is to be a victim. To be a Christian is to be a victimizer in his context. So did Sigmund Freud face an impediment to becoming a Christian that C.S. Lewis did not have as a result of his being a Jew in Europe? Uh, I think that's a very good question. I think absolutely. I think, uh, as you know, uh, Vienna at that time was extraordinarily anti-Semitic. And he suffered a great deal. Freud was very, very sensitive to uh, uh, the negative feelings toward him because he was a Jew. And uh, he, he struggled with this all of his life. And even when he wrote his autobiography, he said the way he was treated and the way his ideas were rejected by German scientists, he felt because he was Jewish. Uh, that made him feel very antagonistic toward, I think, the whole spiritual worldview. And, of course, you know, uh, he just saw everyone as Christian. He made no difference between a Gentile and a Christian, not realizing that probably most Gentiles are not Christian in the sense that Lewis describes. Uh, I have heard C.S. Lewis dismissed by unbelievers as a, a sort of minor intellect, and I wondered, having compared C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud, how you felt about that. Uh, in other words, people have dismissed his belief as being sort of the, the weak choice. Uh, well, I, uh, I think that anybody that knows Lewis's works would, would, would uh, not question his uh, intellect. I mean, I think he's uh, one of the great writers of our time. His literary criticism is still considered uh, classic and is used in universities throughout the world. And, of course, we all know about his uh, popular works they continue to sell. I think he, he had a, a very good mind. I mean, his field was different than Freud's, but I think if... Uh, they would have had some very good uh, intellectual discussions. Uh, I, I, I don't. I don't agree that uh, that Lewis is uh, is not a uh, a significant intellectual. We know that today, dead white European males are subject to an aggressive kind of revisionism. Are you the leader of a revisionist movement when it comes to Freud? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think uh, many of his uh, cont uh, clinical contributions still hold. We use them all the time. I mean, just the basic uh, concept that early life experiences influence how we think and feel as adults is something that we use in the courts, uh, in many different disciplines, in our understanding of human behavior. We just take it for granted now. That's just one example. You've been teaching this class for quite a few years at Harvard, I understand. Yes, I have. And could you tell us uh, how you may have influenced the worldviews of the students? <laughs> um, well, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I try to teach it uh, in 
as objective, dispassionate way as possible. Now, no one is dispassionate about these issues, as you know. Um, but I think the reason I've been able to do it for so many years is that we do make an attempt to make a critical, dispassionate, objective assessment of the arguments for both worldviews. And uh, I must say that some, some people change their worldviews when they begin to, to read uh, the, these documents. And we read the Old Testament, the main uh, basic concepts of Judaism, the Old Testament, and, and we read uh, uh, many of the basic uh, concepts in the New Testament. We read all of the Gospel of John. And, uh, and some, uh, some uh, students have changed their worldview as a result of the course. Uh, last year, at the end of, a, of the course, uh, I just share this, uh, I received a letter from uh, one of the senior tutors who is in charge of the academic progression of, of, the, uh, of the students. And uh, this senior tutor asked me if I would give this one student in my class an extension of their final paper. She said that she had been through some very difficult times personally, had been extremely depressed, had suffered from serious clinical depression, and had attempted to take her life several times. But she said, your course has had a wonderful effect on her. And she, then she closed it by saying, it planted a grain of mustard seed. And uh, later I got a letter from the student who also told me in some detail that this had, she said, given her a, a, a new purpose in life. So uh, those are some things you don't plan on, but... Uh, it, it does. Uh, it does happen. Yeah. Yes. How much do you think Freud was influenced by other intellectuals of his time? Um, do you think perhaps um, he wasn't so much standing alone, but more in the sort of mood of his times? Um, I, I'm thinking specifically of Nietzsche. Yes, I think Nietzsche influenced Freud a great deal, <clears throat> and also. Uh, there was in, in the field of medicine that time a, a real um, <clears throat> effort to separate science and medicine from religion and, and therefore a logical positivism, that kind of philosophy was, was rampant in, in, uh, in, in Europe at that time. And Freud wanted very much to be classified among the scientists. So uh, that too weighed against his... Uh, accepting the spiritual worldview, rejecting it, so that he and his work would be accepted by the scientists. Don't you think in a way that it, it was sort of looked upon as the only new way to think in that time, and so that his movement away from references to God in his writing may have been the result of other influences then? Yes, I, I think that's very possible. My question's a bit selfish because I'm a psychiatrist and I hope Eric's aim is really good because of that. Um, but my question is about um, Freud, my reading of his biography and, and his writings, 
is that he was ruthless towards anybody who disagreed with him. And I'm just curious about um, if reading his letters or this experience with Anna Freud gave you any insight into his making sense of this uh, ruthless, ruthlessness with his colleagues and how scientific he thought his vision was, do you know what I mean? That he, he was not someone who accepted criticism very easily and how Anna Freud might have seen it and how you have, may have understood him as a person by reading his letters. I think that uh, <clears throat> although he, he uh, assumes a, uh, a dogmatic and a feisty uh, outward appearance and he says often that the best defense is an offense uh, and he attacks and if anybody disagrees with him uh, he could be pretty pretty severe as, as you know uh, but I think underneath that underneath that was a very sensitive almost sensitive little boy that was very hurt easily hurt and uh, Really, you know, when he was rejected in college, uh, when he writes his autobiography, he's in his 70s, he, you know, he, he recalls all of the rejections that he received. And he says, it may be foolish for me to be writing about it after all these years. And, but then he says, but nevertheless, it hurt deeply. Hi. It seems that um, Freud, if, if uh, Freud were analyzing C.S. Lewis, he would say, uh, that um, certainly uh, human beings are subjective. Uh, they're led uh, by uh, their conclusions are relativistic. And um, the fact that C.S. Lewis had an autobiography uh, would still be subjective and relativistic. We know that Lewis throughout his life smoked a pipe and drank beer. Could have been influenced by that when he spoke about these things, about his conversion. Now, uh, this would seem to be the great problem for modern man, and that is uh, if the mind itself is disqualified, uh, how can it produce uh, useful information? So uh, just using this as a paradigm, uh, have you uh, uh, approached this question or tried to uh, reckon with it with regard to C.S. Lewis? I mean, has... Uh, do you think that there is an answer from within C.S. Lewis's world system to the claim of just being uh, extremely subjective, a spinner of tales, a relativist? Um, I, think, I think Lewis touches upon this uh, in his book, uh, the, 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 his book on miracles. And, uh, you, you know, if, if, if the universe is just random events, I mean, it's just a senseless um, uh, a senseless uh, a collection of uh, molecules and atoms, uh, then we, Lewis agrees that we can't trust our reasoning uh, because, you know, that too could be just random. And how do we know that what we're uh, thinking about and reasoning is true? But he thinks that reason is something that comes from outside of ourselves, that, that it's God-given, and that it's just part of the, the source of all intelligence. The yeah, but I mean, I, I don't think that would answer Freud, who would still say 
this is just the thought of a man. Why should this qualify as objective or authoritative? Right. Well, I, I think they, they, that's where they would certainly disagree. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it would seem from the way you've explained it that uh, Lewis, in a way, was, would be making a, an, a horrendous presumption merely in terms of what you say, to say that his mind is connected to God, but Freud's isn't? Oh, no, no. He would say that every, all, all reason and intelligence comes from God. Well, okay, I don't know that so, we've so, answered the problem. No. So you're, you're asking then why didn't, why didn't Freud become... Well, I think that simple Christians often say because it's in the Bible. Perhaps the person behind you would like a follow-up question. This is a bit changing subject. I just have a general question about the humanities. I think maybe at the beginning of the 20th century, um, a lot of these intellectuals thought that in order to do justice to metaphysics or to human nature, they had to cast off God. And uh, I think today we see that with all the kind of relativism and uh, just notions of human nature as a construct, that we see that's really not the case. So do you think that that paves the way to kind of a new openness to both metaphysics and to human nature and, and to God? Uh, simply, yes, I, 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 think it, I think it helps. I think it does, yeah. We've, we've got time for maybe two uh, brief questions, three extremely brief questions. Okay. And one long question. I was curious as to how the, the faculty at Harvard has reacted to the course. I, I'm sorry, I couldn't. How the faculty at Harvard, which I make the assumption it's on the materialistic, um, uh, relativistic tip of things. How, how have they reacted to the course? Um, I think uh, they ignore it pretty much. <laughs> have you been criticized at all? I, I haven't uh, that I know of. Uh, <laughs> and also, which, are you in the liberal arts uh, yes, uh, it's taught in, in liberal arts, and uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I I, I I think that it's seen has, uh, I mean, in the course catalog, it's seen has an objective, dispassionate, critical assessment of both worldviews, mm -hmm. and uh, but during the class discussion, it, uh, it it it's sometimes not dispassionate. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Nikolai, you uh, quoted Freud as uh, saying, no source of knowledge other than the intellectual working over of carefully scrutinized observation really counted, and that the scriptures are full of falsification. And then you quoted Lewis as saying, he had a certain willful blindness not to know the truth. And that reminded me of... <clears throat> Well, your own, your own quote. There, there are no atheists in, in foxholes. And there are no atheists, perhaps, someone said, in um, churches, maybe some churches in Harlem where God is actually moving and maybe miracles are happening. There is a, um, an article in, I believe, the, um, the Review of Psychoanalytic Literature published in the late 60s, which I'd like you to comment on. In this article, it reveals uh, a quite amazing encounter between Carl Jung and Freud, which is missing from the official biography of Freud. In this encounter, Freud is in the home of Carl Jung, and Jung, as of course you know, 
was involved with a, let's say, a different dimension of the spiritual. In fact, his, his, his uh, PhD was on the poltergeist phenomenon. And there was a very strange encounter. Objects in the house suddenly burst. Uh, a knife in one of the drawers of Jung's house uh, shattered in pieces, and it completely, to use the modern colloquialism, freaked Freud out. He, I believe, never again met with Jung. Now, if someone is concerned about carefully scrutinized observation, why was this not included in his, in his official biography? And do you have any comment on the influence of Jung beyond that on Freud? Because certainly, he certainly opened up another spiritual pathway for the 20th century, right or wrong. <clears throat> uh, well, all I can say is that, uh, you know, Freud uh, was very interested in having uh, the Swiss psychiatrists that were very well known part, as part of his psychoanalytic group. And Jung, he thought at one time, would be the person who replaced him as head of the... But they, as w happened with Freud and, and with so many of his colleagues, uh, they drew apart and uh, it ended, the relationship ended rather abruptly. And Freud, I think, often when he talked of Jung, talked about his pious assertions and, and uh, tended to uh, see his religiosity as something that was a negative characteristic and spoke negatively about that. Now, why he wouldn't have mentioned this in his, uh, that experience, I, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, I have no idea. And I, I actually didn't know about that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, just one brief question before... A reception. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll try to make this quick and practical. Um, I'm curious if you and your colleagues at the medical school have had any conclusions about how these two different worldviews might compare with respect to someone's health, meaning psychological, spiritual, and physical. Thank you. Well, that's, that's a, a very interesting question. Uh, let me say that uh, over the past 10 years, medical schools have suddenly become very, very interested in understanding a patient's worldview. Ten years ago, there were two medical schools that had courses that taught medical students how to explore these issues. Today, there are 92 medical schools that have courses exploring the patient's worldview. And there's good reason for it. If you look at the medical literature, you find that over the past ten years, there have been an increasing number of scientific, carefully controlled experiments to explore how a person's worldview influences their physical and emotional health. And I must say that almost universally, a person with a spiritual worldview that has spiritual resources to draw on, for some reason that they don't fully understand, but it's in the most prestigious medical journals, it's interesting to, to look up, where they recover from serious heart surgery much more quickly with fewer complications than those who have a secular worldview, and that they recover from and have a less incidence of severe clinical depression uh, if they have these resources to draw on. And uh, just studies of longevity where they just took 
hundreds of thousands of people and just classified those with a spiritual worldview and those without spiritual resources, found that those with spiritual resources lived considerably longer. Longevity seems to be. Now, you might say, well, yeah, there's, it's because of the psychological benefit uh, and, and dismiss it that way. But uh, the upshot of it is that doctors all of a sudden seem to become aware that there is a spiritual dimension to the human being and that to understand the whole person, one should understand that dimension as well. Thank you once again. Thank you, Dr. Nikolai. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful. There's no such thing as an encore lecture, is there? (laughs) Not tonight. Um, Just a few brief announcements before we uh, run to the uh, bar. Um, Socrates in the City Book Clubs. Much heralded, never done. Um, In fact, now we have scheduled three of them, and I think you realize that means nothing. Um, actually, that's not true. You should have on your seats uh, a little card. If you didn't get one, find one. I think there are enough to go around. Uh, explaining um, where, when. Uh, we're going to have a book. These are book discussion groups. Um, the first one is Chance of the Dance, Tom Howard's book, uh, which I have the delight of uh, leading that discussion. I'm really looking forward to that. We've got the dates and the times, um, not the location, so please RSVP to the person Uh, via email, who's leading the group, and um, they'll tell you more. Uh, Question of God, about which we've heard tonight, um, RSVP to David Friedman, Making Sense Out of Suffering, the Peter Kreeft book, will be discussed, led by Rob Vischer, who actually is not here tonight. Okay, so um, think about that. It'd be great to continue this conversation. It's always frustrating for me. I don't know about you, but it's very frustrating to not be able to continue this conversation conversation, say, tomorrow. Um, so if you're interested, RSVP, uh, contact those folks on there. Um, the website. Uh, the website is working, kind of. And um, uh, we would love you to uh, visit it when you can. The RSVP, uh, whatever, function on the website didn't work for a while, but it functions now, although you're here. So... Um, But to visit the website, if you like, we're constantly uh, updating it and adding new things. Um, If you have not been getting the Socrates in the city emails, it means that somehow, amazingly, um, we lost your card or something. And uh, we would really love to put you on the list. So if you are not getting those emails uh, and would like to be getting them, just uh, at the table out front, hand someone a business card or, or, or write your email down and hand it to someone who looks authoritative and we'll try again. Um, finally, uh, out here in the lovely library where we'll have our reception, there is a book table. Uh, as usual, I exhort you to uh, buy as many books as you can carry. Um, they're wonderful books. Dr. Nikolai's book obviously is there, and uh, the books of all the other speakers we've had, and some of the books of the proposed speakers, uh, whom we will have soon. 
Uh, and if you're uh, inclined to be part of one of these book discussions, this is obviously a great place um, to get the book. So if I've forgotten anything, I don't think so. Thank you so much. Uh, Cindy, sorry. Cindy. I, I deliberately skipped over that. Um, actually, we, we are thinking of having uh, the next Socrates uh, in uh, the second week of July or the first week of July. It may be John Lennox, uh, who wrote a book called uh, Did the Bible Bury God or, or something, Does Science Bury God, something like that. Um, it's fabulous stuff. I hope he'll do it. There are a number of other people. I know Chuck Colson's going to be doing one. That probably won't be till October. So we haven't picked the July person yet, but if you're on the email list, we'll let you know. Thanks again for coming. Thank you.